Podcast. Hey parents, did you know your kids' money habits start as early as the second grade? Help them build budgeting and financial skills for the real world with GoHenry, the debit card and financial learning app for kids 6 to 18. Use it to check off chores, set savings goals, automate allowance, and more. Families love it. 92% of parents said their kids were more money confident after using the app. So get started at GoHenry.com. That's GoHenry.com and use the code E2. That's the promo code E2 for one month free. Again, GoHenry.com and get one month free with promo code E2. This is E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed. Thanks so much for tuning into the show today. This is the podcast where we speak to all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today, I chat with Jeff Adamson, who co-founded Skip the Dishes out of a basement in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan with nothing but some pocket lint and a dream of building a successful Canadian startup. Skip is now, as you probably are well aware, one of the most recognized consumer brands in Canada, serving hundreds of thousands of people daily, coast to coast. Now Jeff has moved on to his next venture as the co-founder and chief merchant officer at Neo Financial, where the company is reimagining banking and how digital is on the precipice of changing the whole customer experience. In this great conversation, we chat about all sorts of topics, including Jeff's background as a professional wrestler, how in many ways the sport shaped his career as an entrepreneur, the origins of Skip the Dishes, the evolution of the business and the whole food delivery ecosystem, how Skip landed actor John Hamm for its TV ads, the sale to Just Eat in 2016, and why it was likely a great deal for all involved. And then we shift to Neo Financial, Jeff's next venture, and for it into disrupting Canadian banking, why Canada is so far behind even third world countries with respect to digital banking capabilities, and much, much more. And with that introduction out of the way, let's get to the show. Jeff, welcome to the show. I think where it makes sense to start is your wrestling background. When did you first get into competitive wrestling? I got into wrestling, I believe, in when I was five or six years old. I think I it was like 1991 is when I first started wrestling. I think it was, I think I played hockey for maybe a season and then I got into wrestling right after that. What was it about wrestling that was inspiring and why did you decide to leave the hockey behind? Um, well, I, I stuck with multiple sports for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I think the thing about wrestling, like I didn't, I didn't come from a wealthy family and I think it was probably pretty difficult even just to support hockey like hockey is unbelievably expensive now as i'm a parent and i start looking at what things cost um and so wrestling i believe the yearly membership fees were 25 bucks huh i mean it wasn't any choice of mine like my parents just literally like one day i was like oh i'm in a room with soft mats and we get to like play wrestle with each other okay this sounds like fun when did you realize that this was an area of sport that you excelled in and that you could ultimately compete in Olympics or Pan Am games, for example? Yeah, it, it's it's tough. Like, I think as a kid, you get you, you're a lot of things I think are just decided for you by your parents. And I think for me, 
I was in a few different sports and, you know, I think I, I did okay in, in some of them, but I don't think like hockey didn't really come natural to me. And, um, you know, I was in baseball, basketball, soccer, I was on the, on the canoe and kayak team. Um, so it was, I did a bunch of different things and my parents, I think were just trying to find out like what's going to, what's going to stick. And I, I know that with wrestling, I really did not enjoy it for a long time. Like it was, it, it's a difficult, it's a pretty emotional sport. I think for a kid, like it's quite stressful. I used to get the worst butterflies before, before competitions. Like I used to get like my stomach would just like want to turn upside down and my parents would, would have to like drag me to, to competitions. Um, and, and as a kid growing up in Saskatchewan, we would like literally drive around to small towns, go up to Indian reserves up in northern Saskatchewan. So it was like up at 4 a.m. and then driving six hours to, you know, some like really remote community in northern Saskatchewan to be there to compete for 10 a.m. and then compete and then drive back that same day. I think I kind of fell in love with the sport when I got into high school and I started to kind of be around a good group of people who really made the the experience of of like training a lot more enjoyable and and then of course i think like i had i was i was decently successful at it like i was able i went to the national championships in my first year of high school and and i got second place and and kind of kind of felt like i, I could have won and i was that was a big shock to me high school was when i i made that that kind of turn towards hey like i actually kind of like this i think i'm okay at it and it's something i want to kind of i want to devote a little bit more of my time to and and um, and ultimately, that led to to me representing Canada at the well, obviously for for about a decade on the on the senior national team. Went to the the Pan American Games, went to the the London Games. I didn't compete at uh, the Olympic Games in 2012, but was still brought. Um, won the won the Olympic trials to go to that, and so it's just something that I I really feel like I've benefited a ton from because it's it's just, it's so difficult. <laughs> Having been through that, now I look back and, and I'm like, nothing is going to be as difficult as what I've already kind of had to do with 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 wrestling, and and so that helps keep me pretty grounded and, and give me perspective whenever I go through some difficulties that you know we all inevitably do. Interestingly, I want to touch on what you just said. So you've got a quote on your Team Canada bio that says, "quote Once you've wrestled, everything else in life is easy." And that's by Dan Gable. So who is Dan Gable? What does this quote mean to you? And how does it resonate in the context of being a startup founder? Dan Gable is like considered one of the best wrestlers of all time. And he was particularly known for his his mental toughness and his determination and his grit. Uh, I think he, he won the Olympics, I think, in the 70s for the U.S. And my dad and, and a couple of his friends went and, and I think they drove to New York City and for the, to watch the world championships. And that my dad actually got me a poster um, signed by him and brought it back and gave it to me. And, and that, that was kind of something that felt like it was pretty cheesy at the time. But then now having because I was young when, I, when he gave it to me, but then having kind of been through everything with with wrestling, definitely, I, I feel like it's true. And obviously, I'm still I'm only 35. So I, I've probably have a lot of difficulties ahead of me but at least up until now I can definitely say that I don't think I've ever been pushed as hard as I have in wrestling like like you got to understand the countries that are really good at wrestling are not like vacation hotspots they like we're talking Iran a lot of the middle eastern countries are quite good at wrestling 
probably the sketchiest parts of Russia in um, the Caucasus mountain regions of Dagestan, Ossetia, uh, Chechnya, Mongolia is it's their national sport. There's a few African countries that it's their national sport. India is getting incredibly good at it now. And then the states that are the best at it are the Midwestern states in the U.S. And so like the places that I was able to go and compete in the, in the kind of the the training that you have to put yourself through in order to compete at the highest level is incredibly, you know, taxing. And and then on top of that, you have to, you know, do it at, at your weight class. So there's usually a component of of getting down to your weight that's involved in addition to the the difficult training. So it's um, but you know what? Like, and I, I wouldn't trade any of those difficulties for anything easier because it, it really does kind of level set your some perspective because no matter how hard I, I work you know however you know whatever I end up doing I can always look back and be like I've kind of done difficult things before and so this isn't as bad as something that you know this isn't as bad as having to go to you know Maracaibo Venezuela and lose 20 pounds in 24 hours and compete in 36 degree heat you know against you know the toughest guys in the western hemisphere of the planet so it's like, I, I think I can get, you know, this project done on time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the mental toughness, grit, determination in the context of wrestling. Are these character traits you think are table stakes for any entrepreneur that's going to build something at scale? Oh, I mean, of course. Yeah. I mean, like, I'll give you a quick example of, of just like how, and, and I think it applies to almost any sport actually, Adam. And, and it, when I was in, it was 2011, it was after the Pan Am games, I really felt like I needed to to kind of level up in, in kind of leading up to the 2012 Olympic Games, and I went to to Russia. Well, I did kind of a tour. I went to competed in Spain and then flew to Russia. And like this is the this is the the not like downtown Moscow. This is like flew into Moscow, then from Moscow flew into Mahakchala, I think it is what the city is called, and then flew from there um, to uh, a city called Vladikavkaz. And you're you're basically this is kind of like it, it almost feels like you're traveling back to medieval times, and it really showed me that you've got these people who are living in, at a quality of life far far below what we would even consider low in, here in Canada. They're able to enjoy what they're doing and and to really I think apply themselves at a hundred percent to their craft. And and I look at some of the best entrepreneurs; they're the ones that. A lot of them aren't living lavish lives, you know. They they really just kind of dedicate and apply themselves a hundred percent to their craft um, or or to their their you know their mission at the company. And so for me, when I think about you know founders and and early startup employees, like it's very much the same. You know, you can be miserable the whole time, and you can like if you can't get over some difficulties, then you're not really going to last <laughs> very long. But I think the one thing that is pretty is common and kind of back to the Russian example is that they love what they're doing. Like they are spending kind of almost every waking moment dedicated to getting better at it. And it doesn't really feel like it, obviously it's really difficult work, but they don't really see it as like hard work. Like this is just like this is kind of like what they do. And a lot of the best founders that I've been fortunate enough to, to meet, they, they look at it and they're like they look at what they're doing and they're working 12, 14, 16 hour days. And they, they they can continually do it day in day out, and they they're they're not burning out. I mean, some of them do, but many of them don't because this is this is just kind of like this is their thing. Who are some of those founders that you're referring to? 
Can you share any names? Oh, I think, I mean, I've been fortunate to, to work with, you know, four other incredibly gifted uh, founders just through, through Skip. And that was mm-hmm. um, Chris Samer, Josh Samer, uh, Dan Samer, and, and Andrew Chow. And then a number, like ton of the core team at Skip were, were ex-athletes and incredibly dedicated people. Um, and then now at, at Neo, we've brought, um, so it's Andrew and then Andrew Chow and then uh, another founder, Chris Reed, who is just a brilliant engineer. Um, when I look at um, the other founders in in Canada, you know, a lot of them, you know, like I think of the most successful startups in, in, in Canada, like I mean, no, no one really talks about like wave accounting. Mm-hmm. Those guys, I think, were acquired for about 400 million U.S. The crew over in, in Calgary here at Solium um, was acquired for over a billion dollars uh, a couple of years back. And yeah, they just like they're this is something that they enjoy working on. Good segue. Let's talk about the origins of Skip. So this takes us back to 2012. The Samir brothers started working on this before you, Daniel, and Andrew joined as co-founders. Is is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, Josh. Josh was working in London as a banker, and he had seen that there was a lot of these people who were using uh, food delivery to, to kind of add more time to their day. And you know, it was, it was a different way of looking at it because I think some people think of food delivery as you know, it's the act itself. It's like you're ordering pizza or Chinese food but they weren't thinking of it as like a tool to become more high performance. And that's kind of how Josh looked at it. He was, he was looking at it from like a, I get an extra hour back in my day if I don't have to do the cooking and then I can use that hour to become better at my job. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people I think he, he was exposed to in London thought that way as well. And then he, he looked back in at Canada and there was really only kind of legacy companies offering food delivery didn't really exist at scale and and just eat which was the company in london that that josh had seen had just started in canada and and they're they're i think he got chris to to look at uh, the technology and, and was like hey like is this like kind of hard to do and i think <laughs> like a lot of founders uh, that uh that is it naivete where they're like <laughs> Oh yeah, this this isn't that difficult to do. And then of course they start peeling back the layers, and you're like, oh my god, this is way harder than we thought. What were you doing at the time before you joined, and why did you decide to get involved? Well, interesting enough, I was I, I was in London because I, I went to the, the 2012 Olympic Games. So right mm. when when Josh was was thinking about doing this, I was in London at the same time. Listen, you gotta understand, like I, I think I had I had wrestled for about 20 years straight. Like I had, and, and I think at that point I was like, okay, I think this is kind of a, uh, my, my last kind of kick at the can. Like, I think it's time for me to start, a, you know, you know, athletes say like a real life. And, and so I, I took a little bit of time and then as we were kind of at, at the games and then after the games is kind of when I was like, I think I want to do something a little bit different with my, with my life. Like I, I just can't see myself being satisfied going to work a, a normal day job so when i got back and i connected with with josh and chris and they you know told me a little bit about what they were thinking my first question was what the hell is a startup <laughs> <laughs> i was because you gotta understand adam i went to school um 
and I got trained as a as a research scientist in in biotech. I sucked at that and got into sales consulting mm. for some of the universities and and hospitals and and kind of big pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and and it, it was kind of like one of those things where I was like, I think I'm going to learn a heck of a lot more working with these guys and building something of our own than I am working for you know a, a, an, an existing company. What was it about your background that they found compelling? Like, what did you bring to the table? I mean, I'm not going to claim that I was like this, like super talented, super experienced, smart, capable, you know, co-founder. Like, I, I think that would be pretty arrogant of me to to say. I think what they knew about me because we went to university together. I knew them from from college. Um, they were track athletes, both Chris and and Josh. So I, I knew them. Um, they knew a little bit about me. And I think Josh and Chris were both smart enough to know that you're going to need you're going to need a pretty heavy dose of, of resilience in order to build any type of meaningful business. And I think they kind of knew that I had that in spades. And then I think they're like, hey, okay, I think probably 90 percent chance that Jeff screws it up, but maybe he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> And so that's, that's really how we got started. Yeah. And you mentioned Justine. I mean, that comes all the way back around full circle with the acquisition of Skip later on. But before we get there, around 2012, there was you know a ton of innovation happening beyond Skip in the food sector. You had meal kits hitting the North American market, Blue Apron, Plated, were both founded that year, I believe in the US. HelloFresh was expanding. Were you paying attention to any of this segment of the market or were you guys just laser focused on direct delivery? Well, you know, when we started, Adam, we actually didn't even offer delivery ourselves. Mm. So the first version of the Skip website, and for any any programmers out there that are listening, it was written in in Drupal, which is like, from what I've been told, a coding language that's best suited for kind of databases and libraries, not for like a very dynamic logistics business. <laughs> um so we, the first version of the website uh, of Skip, really all it did was provide customers the ability to order online from a restaurant, that order to be sent to a restaurant. Now, when I mean sent, it just meant that there was a, a username and password that the restaurant would use to access their kind of delivery portal. So they would get an automated phone call just through Twilio that would tell them that they have an order that would prompt them to go to their computer that was usually in their back office or downstairs. They would log in, they would see the order, write it down on a piece of paper, then they would take that order, climb back up the stairs, hand it to the kitchen, and then they would prepare it. And then they would call their own delivery company that was usually on a business card on a cork board. So that was the first version. Then then, um, we, while Chris was on vacation, well, I think what we we actually learned is that the UK, like downtown London is a lot different than downtown Saskatoon. So I think only between 5 and 10% of the restaurants in Canada offered delivery at the time. So we were thinking like, well, even if we really knock out of the park and we add all of these delivery restaurants, A, not all of them are kind of like your, your tier one A plus restaurants. A lot of them are pizza, Chinese food. And so if we thought, well, what if we can make it so that, you know, Earl's could offer delivery or McDonald's or 
your your favorite local restaurant that is you know only dine in that's that's where the idea of of doing our own logistics came from so the proliferation of smartphones must have been one big factor what were the other macro factors that you guys were betting on were you betting on millennials or gen zers to change consumer behavior in a meaningful way yeah i mean that's a that's a great question adam i think so the the move to mobile was mm-hmm. a big one and i think that you know people engaging with with brands digitally a lot more uh, was a huge huge factor i think that there had been a lot of pent up demand for for delivery like in canada like actually even if you look at globally actually is it is a very like food delivery is very popular in canada it's um yeah like canada compared to almost any other kind of first world country is like right up there in terms of the top food delivery countries in the world. So, cause you have a, you have a combination of a lot of different things. You have, you know, very high smartphone penetration, you have uh, weather, and then we also have a pretty generally high household income in Canada. So I think that people have disposable income to, to spend on things like food delivery. Um, and then I, I think of course, like e-com, like e-com growing, um, that was something that obviously really helped because of the fact that people are just getting more and more used to doing things digitally. So you bootstrapped the business at first, and then you raised from angels before raising a proper seed round led by more mainstream venture investors. So two-part question here. One, what factors led to your decision to raise VC money? And two, is there anything looking back that you would have done differently? So Dan Samer, one of the brothers, he was able to kind of help bankroll us in the early days. Um, because he he worked for a software company that was building tech for pension funds, so so we I, I don't I think we looked at doing angels, but we we found that like a lot of the angels wanted to have like Silicon Valley VC terms, mm-hmm. um, and we just felt like you know unfortunately we didn't really think other than just getting some some money in, we didn't really think that they were going to really help us raise future rounds, and so I think. Um, Kind of interesting story about our first round we were you know begging and pleading with investors to kind of write us a, a check because you know we we knew that if we wanted to build skip into a meaningful size um and and, and by meaningful i mean big enough that people were going to notice that you can build a great company in the prairies like there hadn't been a really big tech exit out of manitoba or saskatchewan that we could remember. Hmm. And for, for us, like the thing that we had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder about was you've got all these bright people and no, not a lot of companies that they can go and work at. You know, a lot of these kids are growing up thinking, Hey, I want to go work for Google and Amazon and Facebook and Netflix. There weren't these tech startups in their neighborhood that were really aligned with, with, with their ambitions. Uh And so for us, like we were like, we're going to have to raise money if we want to get, make this big because we're going up against we're going up against these massive global companies like really short story we were desperate for, we were so desperate for cash adam we entered a business contest in my hometown university because the grand prize was 50k mm. we ended up getting second to a company that built a horse hammock <laughs> i won't get into that but so we ended up getting the $5000 second place prize and a gift certificate uh. to deloitte that same day, DoorDash raised $17 million in their seed or Series A. And then, of course, Uber had already raised like a billion dollars. 
So we, we knew we had to raise capital. And after getting kind of laughed out of the room by by most of the VCs, we finally met um, Matt Golden from Golden Venture Partners, who's an ex-Winnipegger. And he kind of, I think, saw something in us, not quite sure what he saw, but at least kind of understood us. He, he got us. So then uh, we had a term sheet from Golden. We were kind of thinking about, I think it was Real Ventures at the time. We ended up going with with Matt Golden because we really felt like he was going to go and and hustle and really work for us. We really felt like he understood us, he got us. So we actually turned away more money to go with someone who we really believed had conviction in us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I definitely think that, like, I, I don't think I would do that any different. I, I think we had many options along the way to to take a different path, but we stayed mm-hmm. loyal to Matt. And, and now Matt is a, is an investor in, in, uh, in Neo Financial too. Among other investors, right, that are super impressive that are involved in Neo. So PayPal founder Peter Thiel is involved, Shopify's Toby Lukey, and there are others, of course. I'm curious to know, is there additional pressure now given the investors that are in the pool this time around versus last time with Skip? I'm not sure. I mean, I think there was a ton of pressure at Skip too. And like Skip is a horribly operational business. Like it's a very difficult business to run. I don't think people understand that operating a three-sided marketplace, two-sided marketplaces are are soul-crushingly difficult. Mm-hmm. Three-sided marketplaces are just incredibly painful because you're just balancing supply and demand across so many stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Toby was actually an investor in Skip. This is before Toby was Toby. You know, this is this is you know, this is pre three hundred billion dollar Shopify Toby. And there's a there's a crew of Shopify people who believed in us early on, and I think uh, I really respect them for that. This time around at Neo, I mean. I don't think we would want it any different. You know, we, I don't think we would want any less pressure on us. I feel like I feel like you kind of need that. I mean, in Canada, like we're talking about a five hundred billion dollar market in Canada alone in in the banking industry. Mm-hmm. The size of the prize is is just absolutely massive, and we know that we're going to need some real heavy hitters behind us to really put a dent in this, or at the very least, push the entire banking industry to innovate and provide Canadians with something better than they have right now. Well, we will get into Neo in more detail in a moment. But before we do that, let's just wrap up on Skip. So you close from Golden. And then I would imagine expansion becomes a priority. You move into the US. Uh, we talked about markets earlier when we were chatting before the show, Australia, Western Europe, etc. What were some of the challenges here as you expanded? And you ultimately pulled out from the US, correct? Yeah, and I think that I mean I've got a lot of respect for for founders that go south because it's just it's such a big market. You do need a ton of money to do it, and, and for us, I, I actually think that we could have listen. Skip was the first food delivery like tech enabled food delivery business to really reach profitability globally. Founded right here in Canada, and I really do. I mean, we didn't know it at the time, like kind of how how our approach was relative to others from like a high detail internal perspective. Mm-hmm. But now looking back, I, I definitely think if, if we had a huge war chest, I feel like we actually could have won the US or at least we would, I mean, most likely we would have been locked in a pretty bloody battle with DoorDash. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, we went head to head in Canada with Uber, DoorDash and Just Eat and, 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 you know, came out with, you know, I think close to 80% market share when I left. So I really think we could have. I think what we found, though, is we realized how big the market in Canada actually was. You know, like we were already kind of into the billions of dollars of in, in kind of GMV in Canada. 
and still growing like 30% sometimes per month. So it was, it was kind of like, we can, we can, we were, we're in like five States in the U S and the prize is big there. But at the same time, like if, if we had kind of already wrapped up Canada and Canada was down to growing the, you know, like single digits per month, then I think it would have been like, okay, we got to go and we got to blitz the U S but Canada was still going gangbusters. So we, we ended up just doubling down on Canada, really kind of securing the lead in Canada. And then, and then helping Just Eat expand globally into, uh, you know, or, or kind of enabling, like taking our logistics to Australia, New Zealand, and, and Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Looking back on that competitive landscape in Canada, you mentioned you get to 80% market share. You're pushing aside DoorDash, Uber Eats, et cetera. What do you attribute that success to? Well, I mean, like, listen, it's it, it takes a whole bunch of things to go right in order for for anyone to pull something like that off. And I think, you know, if I, if I attributed it to anything other than great luck and great people, I think I would be kind of probably misspeaking. Um, so, I, you know, we, I think what we were able to reveal is that there are a ton of incredibly talented people everywhere here in Canada. Like we were able to find people who were stocking books at Indigo and waiting tables at a coffee shop and turn these people into world-class product managers, sales reps, ops managers and directors, VPs. And I think it's to see that transformation that occurred with these people, to see how they have been able to to level up again and again and again. And you're just like, man, like there is no ceiling on some of these people. We started with the mid-markets. So we, we launched in like Mississauga before we launched Toronto. We launched in, you know, um, Kelowna before we launched downtown Vancouver. Uh, so by the time we kind of entered these markets, we we kind of really knew what we were doing and we were able to kind of execute pretty well. But it really came down to like that that great team. And, and we're really, I mean, incredibly fortunate that some of these people, you know, uh, work with us today at, at NEO. I think at this point, people are well acquainted with actor John Hamm as the lead spokesperson for Skip. The ads are incredible, by the way. How did you land John and what was the courting process like? So the the original national tv ads we did i remember we almost got in a fist fight as founders over it um because josh uh, our ceo like he he's like a brilliant lateral thinker and, and he's he, he i don't think he likes going after very obvious ideas and and it was a huge risk so like he was basically ready to punch us in the face if we were going to go ahead and and buy up national TV ads. And and he was right. I mean, there was a huge risk and it may not have worked. But our original TV ad, literally, it was Andrew and I in our in my one-bedroom apartment in Winnipeg trying to think of, like, what should we do for a TV ad? And so we basically created our first national TV ads. I think it had a $15,000 creative budget on it. Um, it was it was literally completely stock footage. It was, like, they were really, really bad. If they, I don't know if anyone has can even remember them. But that was really what actually what catapulted us. It was actually our our best return that we'd ever gotten was actually on those ads. But the John Ham ads, I remember we were we were kind of in talks between John Ham and a few and two other Canadian A-list actors, and <laughs> one of them the timing didn't work out, and then the other one he he wanted free like full creative license over the the process. So it was kind of like you hand him a bag of money. Yeah, so we were we were a little bit hesitant to go with like the bag of cash 
you know, and then you just get your content a couple weeks later and there you go. Although that could have worked out even better. Uh, and then, I, so I think with Joe and then, and then our marketing team and like, I, I can't take any credit for it. This would be, you know, Kevin Edwards, who, who is now our CEO, um, Kendall Bishop, who's a, a marketing director at, at Skip and a lot, long time Skip employee. I think they were the two that really ran point on on the whole process and basically trying to figure out what what angle should we take. So the kind of pretend Canadian angle was something that they they came up with. So to be honest, like I I, I wasn't super involved in it, but I was I was supportive of it. Um, you know, especially seeing how much that raised our profile in, in Canada. Now people talk about it a lot. Yeah. So everything related to John works out. A solid success. Um, let's move to the acquisition. So late 2016, you sell to Just Eat which as I mentioned, comes back around full circle because they were one of the early partners helping you navigate the Canadian market. I assume they were the right acquirer. How do you feel about it? Maybe I'm egotistical to think this, but I think it was a very smart acquisition for, for Just Eat. I think it was a successful one. Um, I think that, you know, listen, it, most acquisitions go poorly. And I think if we did not have as strong as a team as we did, it would have been a disaster. We went through... Just Eat went through six CEOs in the time that we were acquired to when I left. So it was like a revolving door um, and very, very challenging environment to to grow rapidly in. Mm-hmm. Especially you've got a pretty unconventional startup team. Like we do things pretty differently, um, I think, in terms of our approach to growing a business. Just Eat was a publicly traded company on the London Stock Exchange. So it, it, it had all the recipe or ingredients of a train wreck. <laughs> uh, but because of the fact that we had such a great team, we were able to pull it off. And, and of course, like we had, I think we had a great strategy and I think we, we were able to execute and not get distracted by things. But I mean, it all comes back to the team. Well, it's a great story and you tell it well. Um, let's dive into the neo financial stuff in the last 15 minutes or so. So this is my own anecdotal assessment of traditional banks here in Canada, just as a consumer. Um, banks are slow, right? They're not very innovative, unresponsive, typically to consumer needs and mired in a ton of legacy regulation. So I'll put forth that hypothesis. Am I about right? And what are you guys trying to solve here? Yeah, I think, I mean, not to pick on the banks because, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of good for, for Canadians. It is pretty easy to pick on them though. That being said, because, you know, they do, you know, churn out like so much profit off of the backs of Canadians, like $50 billion a year. Um, and kind of on the foundation of technology that, you know, is kind of inherently built in the 1950s on, mm-hmm. on a coding language called COBOL. So it's, it is, it kind of checked a lot of boxes in terms of an industry that we felt was in need of a, of a refresh for Canadians. Mm-hmm. And so for, for us, like it definitely felt like, an industry that, you know, even if you look at Skip, I think Skip was in part successful because we were just applying ordinary modern technology to an industry that had kind of shunned technology in the past. Like the restaurant industry was the first, like they actually said no to the telephone originally. Like why would someone want to call a restaurant? You just come, you just go to the restaurant. And so you look at the banking industry and it kind of has that similarity where, you know, a lot of friction there's a big prize, but kind of the, the the experiences and the features and functionality that customers are getting from their everyday apps 
the Amazons, the Netflixes, the Uber, like you can press a button and a, and a vehicle shows up five minutes, it'll take you anywhere. But like what button is there for you to do everything that you want to do with your money? So that that to me was kind of like a bit of a, okay, I definitely think that there's something there. It just comes down to like, okay, well then what, what is the strategy then? What is What is our approach that is going to leverage our strengths as a founding team? And that it's going to give us like, like a fighting chance at breaking into this market. So what is that strategy and approach then? Yeah. So I think one of the points is that, you know, when, when I, this is basically July of 2019 and, and Andrew, um, who's our, our CEO at Neo, he had already left Skip. So he was one of the first founders to kind of step out and say, hey, I, I'm going to go and, and, and basically kind of take a little bit of time. I think he went to Iceland and, you know, well-deserved vacation. He kind of spent some time talking to different entrepreneurs and founders and had it, had it exited. And because like none of us knew what to do, we were just like, you know, we had exited, we had, you know, life-changing amount of money and kind of like, what's next, right? You're kind of staring off into the abyss now. And I was like, well, what do people normally do? And he's like, Jeff, like, a lot of them just kind of get into real estate. Yeah, a lot of them, they just, they don't really do a lot. Like not, some of them just, they lose the fire. They just kind of, many of them don't go on to found, you know, second companies that, that, that are really trying to solve big problems. Many of them kind of just relax a little bit. And that that actually like terrified me a little bit mm. because I don't know, I didn't want to fade away into like this comfortable life. So so when he he started digging around and, he started talking about the the banking industry and and you know I don't think we we knew it at the time but pretty much everyone in Canada has a story about a terrible banking experience and the problem is that there's really no reason for them to switch because the bank the other bank is the same thing just a different color you know what's interesting before you continue sorry BCG just put out a Canadian retail banking report back in October that showed customer satisfaction and trust in the big five banks is actually still like at an all-time high. So how do you square these findings with what you're saying here? I, I think that makes sense because like the difference is that like compare Uber to the taxi industry. Like once you use an Uber and you go back to using a taxi, you almost feel like you're having a crime committed against you. Like it's it's just so bad, right? But no Canadians have no clue about what they're missing out on. Like we are actually farther, we're, we're behind Africa in our banking technology. Like you can do more on a banking app in Southeast Asia than you can do in Canada. Um, but how many Canadians have accounts in these other countries? Like people get exposed, like, okay, we, we know Blockbuster and we know Netflix. We know, you know, Amazon versus everything. So we can <laughs> see those differences in, in, our, in our daily lives. Uh -huh. But Canadians it's kind of like ignorance is bliss. It's kind of like, yeah, like I'm, I'm happy with my bank. Like it does, you know, everything I, I want it to do because we, we don't actually know what it can do for us. And they're just kind of steadily churning out massive amounts of profit on the backs of high fees that Canadians pay. Mm -hmm. And Canadians are willing to pay them because they have no, they haven't been exposed to any alternative yet. And that, and that's what we're looking to change. Right. So how do you begin to educate or awaken Canadians in this regard and move them in a more progressive direction, let's say? Yeah, and that's, that's a great question. And I think that, it, you know, the first is is really awareness, um, having people to understand that there is another option out there that is different than what they're used to. 
And I think that one of the things that I've heard from from our users that that download Neo is that they didn't quite understand what they were missing until they actually tried it. Like, for example, people like it's little things. It's just it's removing all of the friction from every piece of your entire experience. You know, take take the even the onboarding experience of getting a credit card or opening up a high interest savings account. I, I tried opening up a post acquisition. I was trying to park some money in a high interest savings account. And there was one bank that had a, a really, really great rate. And I tried for weeks to get my money over to them and, and kept getting errors. And I kept you know, calling in. And then I, like 45 minutes later, I'm just like, okay, I can't, you know, I can't make enough time to do this. We've taken the entire onboarding process down to under three minutes. So like literally it's like opening up a Netflix account. You can, you download Neo and we, we partner with, thousands of retailers across Canada, there's going to be, a, you're going to walk into a coffee shop, you're going to be able to actually see that this merchant is on Neo, and then customers can download Neo in under three minutes, get approved, uh, instead of having to, because like, you have to verify someone's identity for, for legal reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so we actually have selfie technology, you just take a, a selfie of yourself, take a photo of your ID, and then within a few minutes, you're issued uh, a digital credit card. So basically, the way I think about it is you can order a coffee, go through the whole onboarding process, and then actually tap with your phone and pay for that coffee before it's ready. Now, that's just one area. Then you think about, okay, well, what are the other friction points? Paying your bill. We've made it so that people, we actually give them notifications like regularly about payments that are coming up. And then instead of having to get people to, to like type in different amounts, we actually pre-populate the, the amounts and say, hey, do you want to avoid all interest charges? Just tap this one button. We've built the entire infrastructure of Neo um, from the ground up ourselves. We haven't taken off the shelf products and stitched them together. We've kind of done it the hard way. And it allows us to actually personalize cash back to customers and provide it to them inst instantly. Mm -hmm. You compare this to like American Express is one of the global leaders in this. The way that their cash back works it's it's you know two percent cash back is what you can get, but you can only access it once per year. Whereas with with Neo, you can actually get up to twenty five percent cash back, and they actually get it in the moment. So it, I think it's I think people once they actually experience it are quite shocked that this is even possible, and and that's the reaction that we're looking for out of out of our early users. Yeah, in addition to the savings account, which pays one point five five percent annually, which is higher than the big banks. And that comes with unlimited transactions and no fees. Well, even the um, the experience of, because like I think people just naturally think, oh, it's such a pain in the butt to open up a high interest savings account. It literally takes seconds, and you can link your other bank accounts to Neo, and and transfer your money in, in about two taps. It's very cool. How many users at this point? Um, we we don't disclose like publicly user numbers, but we are. I can definitely say that we're one of the fastest growing in Canada right now. Um, we, I would be like, I, I have no doubt that that Neo will become a much bigger business than Skip is. And I'm not saying that in a, in a competitive way, but I just think that the opportunity is just so, so big. And this, this time next year, I would not be surprised if we're the largest fintech in Canada. Are there meaningful competitors in your opinion? And where does a wealth simple, for example, fit into this? I think that you know there there's there's a ton of cool companies out there. You know, we when I think of that, I think of you know the Well Simples and the Cohos. Like these are 
these companies are pioneers, I think, in in the fintech space. And I think even when I think about Neo and our goals, the the value that we can bring to Canadians, I think there's the direct value that we can bring as as people being members of Neo. But the indirect value that I think that us and the cohos and the wealth simples, I think the the potentially even the bigger value atom is all of these companies forcing innovation onto the broader banking ecosystem in Canada. We're, we're like a year old company. And I'm hearing rumblings that the executives at a lot of these banks are, some of them actually have Neo. Like they actually have downloaded Neo, they have a Neo card. And, and some of them are actually really concerned about what Neo represents. And I think that that right there is very reassuring to me that we have the attention of the people who are in a really good position to make change for Canadians and to actually say, hey, you know what? We need to be doing a better job. And, and again, if it's motivated by fear of, of losing, then that's that's fine. I'm happy as long as they're going to um, provide more value back to Canadians. And I think the Cohos are doing that. I think the Simples, the Mogos, they're all part of that, I think. And it seems like the vision is very long-term. It's disruptive. It's anti-establishment. The last meaningful challenger bank in this country was ING Direct, now Tangerine, and that's wholly owned by Scotia, I think. Um, I believe I know the answer to this question, but based on your vision and that of Wealth Simples for that matter, I assume nobody's looking to be bought out here? My take on that is, you know, the primary goal is always to create value for our users um, and to provide meaningful experiences for, for our team so that they can grow and learn. The, the outcomes, I think, will take care of themselves um, if we're able to execute on our on our plan. And and I think that if we can create value for millions of Canadians, then there will always be a buyer. But that the primary goal is not not to be acquired. The primary goal is to create value. Our belief is that digital banking will eat banking eventually. So we're we're betting on on, on digital, we're betting on mobile, and we believe that we were going to be the best at that. Neofinancial.com for more info on Neo. And obviously, Skip the Dishes, which is alive and well at skipthedishes.com. People can download both of these apps everywhere. Where else can people connect with the team or you personally, Jeff? Yeah, I think the best place, um, and, and obviously, like we we love getting feedback. So definitely go to neofinancial.com and 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 download Try Neo. You know, give us your feedback. Uh, you can reach me on, on probably LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, uh, LinkedIn is just Jeff Adamson and, and on Twitter is at Ken Adamson. So I think, um, yeah, I mean, we we are going to need the kind of the support of Canadians if we're going to pull this off. And I and I really hope that people give us a try and 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 let us know how we can be better, because I, I think it's really important that we, you know, help Canadians get out of. I mean, right, like right now, 50 percent of Canadians are about 200 dollars away from insolvency and yeah, the banks are making 50 billion in profit per year. So I think there's there's an imbalance here that I think that we as Canadians have an opportunity to change. I'd like to think that that's us, but that's really up to Canadians to decide. And and the only way we're going to do that is is with their help. Banking reimagined, giving you more time and money. Again, folks can download the Neo app everywhere. Jeff, thank you so much for your time, and I appreciate you coming on the show today. Adam, thank you. Um, you know, I appreciate you. I'm grateful to be on your podcast and um, I hope, you know, your listeners got, got something out of this and um, all the best to you as well. Thank you, man. That's it, guys, for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. 
Want to build recurring revenue for your business? Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. If you enjoy the show, download, share, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at glow.fm slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 years of music with 50-year-old white guys. Electric acid.